We live in an age of political polarization and preference bubbles, of economic change, rising threats, and a rapidly changing world. Canada needs to stay relevant. We need more smart conversations. We need to dive into critical issues and big ideas with passion and unrestrained optimism. I'm Aaron O'Toole. Welcome to the Blue Skies Podcast. Welcome to the Blue Skies. Today, we are fortunate to talk Canada-US relations, talk about the state of foreign policy for the democratic world. And we have probably one of the foremost experts in the world with respect to the position of the United States in an ever-changing world. We have Robert Zellick on the Blue Skies podcast today, currently senior counselor with the Brunswick Group, also an adjunct professor and senior fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. Bob was president of the World Bank Group between 2007 and 2012. Before that, under President George W. Bush. He was the United States Trade Representative for four years. Before that, he served as Deputy Secretary of State for Condoleezza Rice. He has been recognized for his tremendous public service by receiving the Distinguished Service Award from the Department of State and the Alexander Hamilton Award from the Department of the Treasury. And we found Bob Zellick today in McLean, Virginia, Welcome to this cross-border Blue Skies podcast, Bob. Thank you for having me here. Well, we're lucky to have you here, particularly with your experience on, on foreign policy, on Canada-U.S. relations. And we're going to refer to a great report that you co-chaired in 2014 with General David Petraeus, North America Time for a New Focus, because I'm worried about the decline of Canada-U.S. relations at a time where the democratic world has to be solidly united as we see uh, the rise of China, the war in Ukraine, and aggressive foreign policy in the near abroads for, for the Russian and, and, and Chinese powers. We also see the rise of, of India, the increasing importance of the Indo-Pacific. So it's a critical time for old allies to be reliable allies. And that's the point of this, of this podcast, Bob. But why don't we start with your perspective on the U.S. position in the state of world affairs right now? And let's go to the war in Ukraine, which is now over half a year long. Um, where are we? Is Congress going to remain there as a steadfast supporter of both arms and aid? Well, Aaron, first, let me thank you for the invitation. And uh, actually, my work with uh, Canada goes back even further, I, I worked for Secretary James Baker when he was at the Treasury Department. And as you may know, uh, President Reagan uh, urged him to come back and sort of take over the U.S.-Canada free trade negotiations in 1987-88. And I was the person that staffed him on that. And then uh, oh, wow. and then I worked for uh, the first President Bush when uh, was again with Secretary Baker when he moved over to the State Department. And so that was the uh, creation of NAFTA, where I worked particularly closely with uh, Derek Burney, who was Prime Minister Mulroney's chief of staff and then ambassador, who was a great colleague and remains a, a superb friend. So I'm afraid my chops go back a long way on some of these topics. And, and just to, to set the stage a bit, Aaron, um, in some ways, the situation that you broadly described today reminds me a little bit of the world of 1989-90. Not that the circumstances are, are the same, but in the sense that in 1989-90, you had a sense that the puzzle, the pieces of the puzzle were broken and thrown in the air. 
And the question was, how would you try to reassemble them as they're coming down? And that's exactly what we're dealing with today, you know, on so many different fronts. And so there's a particular need for agility on the part of U.S., Canada, and, and our alliance friends. So in the case of Russia, Ukraine, I mean, I said lesson number one is you can see the brittleness, the brittleness of authoritarian states. You know, I think if we'd been talking a year ago, people would have thought the Russian military would have marched into Ukraine quite successfully. Well, it's turned out the fortitude of the Ukrainian people has had something to say about that. But, it's been incredible. But on the other hand, I'm, and, and I think for the U.S. and Canada and the G7, we've had a good supporting response for uh, Ukrainians. I'm, I'm a little worried that we're doing enough to stop Ukraine from losing, but not necessarily enough to sort of set up what I hope will be some, uh, some ending to this war, uh, maybe next year, because I think we're going to face a very difficult winter. The United States, as you know, is now authorized about $65 billion and a lot of military supplies. Um, Europe, I think, has actually been a little bit on the short side in terms of some of the economic assistance that it's promised. I know the importance of Ukraine to many Canadians, and so I know Canada's been very stalwart on this uh, issue as well. What I'm most concerned about now, Aaron, is, you know, while Ukraine is doing pretty well militarily, this is going to be a very cold and difficult winter. And you can see that Putin has maintained the initiative, whether by trying to take out electrical and power centers, by his threats of dirty bombs or nuclear weapons, or he moves back and forth on the food and the grain issues. And so one of the things that I've been suggesting is, is that uh, we have about, the Western countries have frozen about $300 billion of Russia's reserves. And if you look at the developments under international law dating back about 20 years, there's a very good argument, not that we would take those reserves for ourselves, but that we could transfer them to Ukraine as part of an international law process. So you actually boost in, uh, international law, which is an area that Canada's had a long commitment. You probably need domestic legislation to help support this, which I think Canada has. The U.S. is actually discussing it. But it's not only for the economic support area. Part of the idea here is it gives you leverage. And so as opposed to just allowing Putin to set the initiative, we should be partly setting the initiative on these issues while also trying to help the Ukrainians and including for, for the, the, the medium term reconstruction. Agreed. And you've been writing on this lately to, to be a thought leader. This would also provide a little bit of relief because it, it's clear in the midterms, which we're taping this just before the U.S. midterms uh, tomorrow. But some of the rhetoric, both within Republican circles and Democrat circles, is that there might be a bit of fatigue with funding the war in Ukraine. The transfer of these reserves would, would serve to have Russia fund Ukraine's response. How likely do you think that could uh, be achieved, particularly if the Republicans take, the, take, uh, take Congress? Well, I think the good news is that while you've seen some on the, the far right and some on the left sort of question the ongoing support, the majority position is to support the people of Ukraine. I mean, their heroism is certainly the best advertisement. And Zelensky, of course, is you know a superb communicator on these issues. But as you know from politics, as these things wear on, as this starts to become a stalemate, as you, if we end up with recessions next year, there will be more pressure. 
And as I've said, the United States has already authorized about $65 billion. That's no small sum. The, the Ukrainians finance minister and central banks argue they need about $5 billion a month uh, simply mm-hmm. to survive. And that's, they're not getting that assistance. So I think one of the reasons that I suggested this idea was not only for leverage to help Ukraine, but also to take some of the political pressure off our countries going into 2023. As for progress, um, I actually started to discuss this idea with some of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee staff in the summer. And the positive side is there's been a bipartisan effort in, in the Senate with Senator Risch and, and Senator Whitehouse uh, to kind of draft legislation. And I think even as we see what legislation, maybe in the lame duck or others, they're sort of looking to see whether they might attach this domestic uh, authorizing legislation. That still leaves the administration to decide whether it wants to use it. And of course, to be effective, they need to do this in the process of the G7. I think there's a little bit of a hesitancy. I think the Treasury Department's more wary than the State Department may be on this. But as you suggest, I mean, I think the politics are inevitable. I mean, at some point, you have to ask yourself, do you really expect the G7 nations to return $300 billion to Russia after this? So isn't it better to use it now? And, and look, if, if it is a point next year where you reach some settlement, well, maybe that's also allows you to sort of facilitate the, 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 some conclusion, even for the Russians on the process. But as you know, we're not there yet. Yes. And the OECD, I was part of some meetings that were already talking about a fund, almost a Marshall type fund to rebuild Ukraine after the war uh, in the in the ballpark of eight hundred yeah. uh, billion dollars. This this reserve issue actually gets us to a point where we could see Ukraine victorious. As your point right now, we're kind of setting up to make sure they don't lose. But this war could drag on uh, for many more months, e- even another year. And if it weren't for the U.S. military aid, particularly some of the ability to to regain territory by Ukraine and some of the the artillery and smart artillery pieces, um, we've seen that transfer of military technology lead to direct Ukrainian gains on the ground. So I think all of us as allies have to support that effort uh, being led by the U.S. Well, and Aaron, you know, the other point is that, you know, I've spent much of my life in financial markets as well. So some people say, oh, will this undermine trust in the dollar? And frankly, my argument is people hold dollar reserves for purposes of macroeconomic stability, not so they can invade their neighbors. Um, I don't think uh, either Canada or the United States think that's a very attractive idea. Um, so I think this can be done under international law in a way that also keeps the, the dollar-based sort of financial system strong. If anything, as you know, the U.S. dollar has actually been a little bit too strong in some of the markets these days. I, I think it will continue to be, particularly as we see uh, winter take hold in in Europe. But let's I've got Bob Zelik. So let's take you to another corner of the world, Bob. Um, Certainly the rise of China. And this has been an area where I think Canada has been out of step with the United States, particularly in the first seven years of of Justin Trudeau. We we were even positioning for a free trade agreement with with Beijing at, at a time where our U.S. allies were warning us about foreign takeovers, warning us about Huawei and the 5G. We're only now following the the hostage diplomacy of the two Michaels and 
and Miss, uh, Miss Meng, the CFO of Huawei, where we needed US intervention to get our citizens back. I think Canada is coming into line now, but where is the US, US with respect to the rise of China and particularly some forecasts that could see an invasion of Taiwan in the next three to five years? So, and where I should start by saying, you know, the sympathy I have for the suffering that Canada had with the two Michaels. And frankly, it's a good example of why the U.S. owes some special friendship and consideration for Canada, because your people took it on the chin for, for the U.S. action here, and you're trying to defend the rule of law along in the process. Um, as you may know, Aaron, look, I worked with China for, for years, and I was a supporter of trying to see whether we could integrate China more effectively in the international economy. And, 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 and there were points along the way where China, frankly, cooperated with us on Iran and Afghanistan and the global financial crisis. But I think there's no doubt that Xi Jinping has moved the situation in a different direction. I mean, and the most recent party Congress is very revealing. Because if you go back to the Deng Xiaoping era, Deng pushed a collective leadership. Well, that's gone. Second, he pushed some notion of factional balance. Well, that's gone. <laughs> and he also had some norms of retirement, and that's gone in the process. So I actually first met Xi Jinping in, in 2006 when I was at the State Department. And I also uh, visited him in Hangzhou when he was the party secretary there, and again, at various times as he moved to become president. And I'll share with you an anecdote that is rather telling. So I saw him shortly after he became president and general secretary in 2012. And at the World Bank, we worked with the Chinese reform side to develop what's called a China 2030 report to say, well, what's the next steps for Chinese reform? So I'm meeting Xi and I said, you know, what are your reform priorities going forward? And he said, uh, the 86.68 million members of the Communist Party and that uh, I remember because the numbers are transverse. Well, now it's like 95 million. Now, Aaron, I've dealt with lots of global leaders in different roles <laughs> about economic reform. And if I'd asked them their development priorities, not one would have given me the party memberships. <laughs> yeah. It was kind of a leading indicator of where this was going. And so, you know, I, I think um, the attitudes in the United States, bipartisan, are quite confrontational. I would argue we have to be a little careful about how far we go in it. I mean, I think, frankly, the administration has done a good job in repairing some of the relations with our Pacific allies. I think AUKUS is a constructive step. The Quad's a constructive step. Frankly, I think we're going to have to spend more on defense than we've been spending. That's going to be critical given some of the transformations of, of the defense sector, particularly in the Pacific. But at the same time, you really do want to avoid a direct head-to-head -head, uh, fight with China. The, 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 and even on the economic side, you know, you're not going to be able to contain China with Japan and Australia and India or South Korea. So we, we have to also, at the same time that we have deterrence and work with our allies, and frankly, you're going to see more on the technology export control areas. You and I were discussing the experience with Huawei. But I also think we need to have some communication that has been lacking because you don't want to have miscalculation. You don't want to have mistakes. As, as you've mentioned, I think Taiwan is the most sensitive area there. And I think this is where uh, the United States and, and its partners are going to have to be particularly careful. 
on the one hand, we want to protect Taiwan's democracy, its, its economic ties with the world. On the other hand, I think we have to be aware that if Taiwan moves towards independence, I'm not sure any Chinese leader could accept that. So how do you try to walk that, that fine line in terms of having the appropriate deterrence while also trying to manage some baseline aspect of the relationship? We still do $600 billion of trade with China, and yeah. Canada does a big amount too. For your farmers, this is important. I'm not sure the U.S. has gotten that right yet, Eric. Uh, we'll see it, it, what comes out of the meeting that Biden and, and Xi were supposed to have around the G20, whether they have some sort of reset. So far, we've been in a world where we're kind of in a downward spiral. And at some point, you know, just as, as, as we did at points with the Soviet Union, you've got to have some coexistence. You've got to have some management of the dangers here. We're in that phase. And that's again where, in my experience, Aaron, you know, the, the cooperation with Canada, Canada's going to look at this uh, maybe slightly different timing and others, but you've got similar interests here in terms of your security, your technology. On the other hand, you want to be open. You've got a large number of people that have come from Hong Kong and others. Uh, in some ways, I think you've been smarter than the U.S. and that, you know, if, you, if they want to clamp down in Hong Kong, what we should have done is said, fine, come come here, as, as in a sense, Canada tried to yeah, we were able to gain literally uh, hundreds of thousands of citizens, uh, well-educated, very really upwardly mobile uh, at a time of the handover. What's interesting, uh, I would talk to our foreign affairs critic, Michael Chong, quite regularly. His father had immigrated to Canada from Hong Kong after the war. There's more Canadians in Hong Kong, Canadian citizens, than there are in our province, Prince Edward Island. Uh, Bob, you probably know the Maritime Province, Prince Edward Island. So in many ways, Hong Kong is is like our 11th province in, in some way. There's so many citizens there. Well, Aaron, it even goes deeper than that. This one's going to surprise you. So I, I lived in Hong Kong on a fellowship uh, for about six months in 1980. And if you when you go to the, the, uh, the garden area in Central District, many people might have missed this, but there's a statue to the Winnipeg Regiment. Because the Winnipeg Regiment was sent to Hong Kong uh, shortly before World War II started for the United States, at least. Canada was already a part of it. Um, and they weren't really prepared for the circumstances. They got uh, chewed up pretty badly. Um, but at least it's nice that people in Hong Kong remember them and, and did some memorial to them. Well, it's amazing you said that. The Winnipeg Grenadiers, Bob, you're absolutely right. I've been to Saiwan Cemetery where... Uh, some of the Winnipeg Grenadiers are buried, including John Osborne, our, our Victoria Cross recipient from the Battle of Hong Kong. In fact, that battle and the invasion of Hong Kong happened simultaneously to the Pearl Harbor invasion. And Churchill was quite worried that the the, the battalions that were sent to, to Hong Kong had no chance of ever defending the garrison. And he was really worried that it would blunt Canada's interest in maintaining the war effort. So you know the Canadian war history better than some Canadians, Bob. Let me ask, before we leave that, um, because President Biden has stepped around a few times the issue of strategic ambiguity on Taiwan. He's actually said that there would be uh, a U.S. response and then staffers kind of walk it back. Is that... Is that strategic? Is the strategic ambiguity changing? Um, any comments on that? Because I, I think a lot of observers believe that 
Xi is watching Putin's uh, experience in Ukraine, and we'll see how the world responds to aggression. Um, and the comments of the U.S. president are critical to that balance. Well, as you know, uh, President Biden kind of speaks what's on his mind, uh, particularly when he's not, <laughs> not scripted. Uh, he's getting at an age where he probably does that sort of even more than he might have in the past. Um, and I think he's reflecting the reality that you know, probably most Americans would feel the need to stand up to try to protect Taiwan if they're in invasion. However, where I think he needs to be careful is at the same time, they repeat that we're trying to stick with the one China policy. In other words, you don't want to signal to Taiwan to move towards independence because then you could have a crisis, which we would want to try to avoid. I think you're at this point now, this goes to my point about miscommunication or miscalculation, where uh, frankly, the Chinese hear the U.S. repeating the one China policy, but kind of eating away at it below. And my own view, going back to Teddy Roosevelt, is sometimes it's better to speak softly and carry a big stick. So right now, the challenge is to make sure that Taiwan learns the lessons from Ukraine about having the type of defense of a hedgehog defense that makes this invasion very difficult. I mean, as you know, you know, as, as, a, as a soldier, it's about 100 miles across the Taiwan Strait. So that's about three times the English Channel. This is not a small venture. Uh, on the other hand, I think what we always have to be prepared for is whether China might use other ways to try to restrict Taiwan. So, for example, when you saw Speaker Pelosi's visit, if you watch the Chinese response, they basically used missiles and, and sort of other military means to show that they could cut off access to Taiwan. And the scenario that I'm worried about, Aaron, is, is not a blockade, but let's say a quarantine where they say, OK, you can continue to trade with Taiwan, but no military supplies come in. Hmm. Then it puts the burden of escalation on the United States, whether it's going forward. And if it doesn't, well, then you've got a situation where confidence in Taiwan will just drop like a rock. Obviously, as you know, people wargame these situations, and it gets a lot more complicated if you're doing a quarantine in the far western Pacific than if you're doing it as in 1962 uh, in the Caribbean with, with Cuba. One thing is very clear, and that is the key role of the relationship with Japan. And you can see the Japanese sort of attitude starting about their security starting to move a little bit. So these are exactly the sort of topics that, frankly, United States, Japan, Canada, Australia, uh, frankly, need to be gaming up. Yeah, and this is a perfect time to segue into the North American relationship because we've we've tapped your perspective on the great power rivalry we see with Putin's invasion of Ukraine, uh, the rise of, of of China and the 19th and 20th People's Congress, and where they seem to be going. You mentioned both the importance of AUKUS, that's uh, Australia, UK, US, and the Quad. Canada's not a member of either of those organizations. And if you look at, let's look at, at Russia and Ukraine, the, the NATO countries through the Latvia mission, as we were talking about before we started recording, Canada's been there for Operation Reassurance, Operation Unifier. We were the first country to actually recognize the independent Ukraine and, and that strength of the NATO-North Atlantic relationship is quite established between Canada and the U.S. But in the Indo-Pacific, we're also a Pacific nation like 
like the United States, we don't seem to be the aligned, trusted ally to the degree the Australians or, or, or Japan or even rising powers like India is for the US. Why is that? And is that a part of just our lack of, of you know, strength or commitment in terms of, of naval support or other things for the Indo-Pacific? Is it also a little bit because we've been a bit out of step with respect to Huawei, with respect to to China more broadly, why aren't we that trusted ally in the Pacific that we seem to be in the North Atlantic? Well, I think you've got a good and bad side to this. On, on the good side, if you really look at the origins of AUKUS, and, and I discussed this with uh, Scott Morrison, who's the Australian Prime Minister at the time, it probably grew as much out of the Five Eyes intelligence relationship as it did out of traditional alliances. And of course, Canada is part of that. And that's a very important relationship to maintain and continue to modernize uh, technologically. If you, if you think about what that AUKUS was about, in part, it was Australia moving to purchase some nuclear submarines, whether from the US, UK. But I think the bigger story, Aaron, is um, sharing defense technology for the future, um, uh, uh, whether it's quantum or other aspects. The, the Pentagon, as you know, sometimes gets a little sensitive about this, and the Navy in particular. So the big question here will be whether the United States can keep up the focus to try to share this defense technology with Australia and other allies. Then that goes back for Canada. It really goes to resource allocation. So as you know, um, a lot of this is a question of how much you're going to spend on defense. In some ways, Canada, like Europe, sort of enjoyed the holiday from history, where we kind of thought you didn't need to allocate this. Um, so I think the basis is there, particularly because of the intel relationship, but this is the nature of, of allies. I think it also depends on where would you set your priorities. So my guess is the Arctic would probably be a very important one in the North American relationship. As you said, uh, the, the Canadian cooperation NATO uh, when not only Ukraine, but with the Baltic states, that's important. I'm sure that the United States would welcome the security relationship and support in the broader uh, Indo-Pacific. And from a Canadian point of view, of course, that's a very important region, as you've known. I, I think the other part, and Canadians would know this better, is, is that we've, we've all had to go through some political readjustment here as, as China sort of has turned more inward and the wolf warrior diplomacy. And it's taken some time to recognize this because it's been an important relationship for, for all of us. But of course, the other side of it is, you know, uh, if you go back to the Korean War in 1950, you know, Canada was an active part of that. If you think about the relationship with Japan, your interests in Southeast Asia, the ties with India, these are part of your geostrategic as well as geoeconomic relationships of the future. And obviously, from the U.S. point of view, it would be best if we could do that cooperatively. Absolutely. When I was in the Harper government and when we, we first met, the, the trade focus we had through the Trans-Pacific Partnership, we had our first free trade agreement bilaterally with, with South Korea. I got to go over to South Korea as parliamentary secretary to kind of push the deal through because we were slowly losing market share in beef to Australia because of their uh, their free trade agreement slightly before us. Um, the the fact that we had lost blood and, and treasure in the Korean War was very meaningful 
to all parties when we were pushing through the implementation of that trade agreement. And I think Canada's positioning our Pacific Gateway in Vancouver, one of the world's great cities. We've been building that infrastructure to get wheat, to get liquefied natural gas, all of these key exports for that growing part uh, of the world. But we seem to not be in the club, to use the simple vernacular. Do you think if Canada set it as a priority with the Biden administration, we could we could become a participant in the quad? I guess it would change the, the, the quad to a quint, maybe. <laughs> um, and, or with AUKUS. Is, is AUKUS just about submarines or is it a branch off of the Five Eyes? I think there's a lot of people in the defense and security space in Canada, in Canada quite worried that AUKUS may be a, a kind of Five Eyes plus where Canada's not at the table. Should we be putting this, in your view, as a priority for our foreign policy to get a seat at the table? So, you know, I, I think obviously you have to set your own priorities in terms of, you know, where you're going to put the resources. The natural connectivity is there, starting with the five eyes. Um, I've had this discussion with some Japanese officials, too. And the Japanese, of course, are not part of the five eyes. And there's been some sensitivity about the security of the uh, information intelligence systems in Japan. But Canada is already beyond that threshold because of the five eyes relationship. So as in lots of things, Aaron, I think it depends on what you bring to the party. Um, so <laughs> I know this is a far cry from, from your policies, but I remember um, when I worked on the U.S.-Australian free trade agreement, when I was the U.S. trade representative, I was dealing with the Canadian, the Australian ambassador here. And when he was a young diplomat, he, he, he told me he did a visit to, uh, to Canada and uh, the Canadian said, well, our number one security concern is the United States. And from, from Australia, he said, if that's your number one security concern, you're in a pretty good position. Because from where Australia looked, it looked a little bit more sensitive. But I think, frankly, this goes back to what you and I have both been committed to. There's a side for the U.S. here, too, which is I, I think we should think more in North American terms. You mentioned the Trans-Pacific Partnership. As you may know, the Obama administration was a little slow in encouraging Mexico and Canada to be part of it. I felt that the way you want to strengthen the North American ties is to connect it very much. Now, of course, the U.S. drops out and, you know, Canada and Australia and Japan sort of move that agreement forward. Well, good for you. Um, I, if to give you another example today, you know, with Brexit, I have urged that the United States and frankly, you already have. Uh, a, a trade agreement with the EU and one with, with the UK. But, but frankly, if we could do a North, take our North American arrangement and connect it with the UK, that would be strategically important for Britain at a time that it's going to be sort of looking to its future. But, you know, as you know, one of the frustrations that people have in Ottawa or throughout Canada is that sometimes the United States doesn't pay enough attention to some of these topics as you see with some of the discussion with some of the industrial policies in the U.S. about sort of where it treats Canada. My view is that's always a mistake. My view is that we should see North America as a continental base, and it makes all three countries stronger exactly in the global topics that, that you've been talking about. So, you know, like I was part of the creation of NAFTA from the start, and I worked with it at later points, and I've always seen it as much more than a trade agreement. It really is to try to 
deepen the network among all three countries, but recognize that unlike the European Union, which is pursuing the notion of shared sovereignty, all three of our countries have a very strong sense of independence and sovereignty because of our history. So how do you make interdependence work and interconnections work while respecting that it's a different type of model? And as you and I have discussed, I, I think the attention to that has slipped somewhat. Every once in a while, it gets a surge when all of a sudden people recognize the importance of, of the North American market. Um, on the positive side, Aaron, you know, Trump wanted to kill NAFTA, right? Mm -hmm. And it tells us something that after 30 years, it was embedded enough in the three countries. He couldn't do it, or Lopez Obrador from Mexico couldn't do it. But it is kind of sad that they took North America out of the name, but we should be building on, on what the USMCA that, that was created. And on that, uh, your report with General Petraeus in 2014, North America Time for a New Focus, was intended to build on that NAFTA relationship. And in fact, it referenced the Trans-Pacific Partnership discussions. Having the three parties at the table, the TPP ended up being an opportunity until the U.S. withdrew of modernizing NAFTA with respect to also growing trade access in Asia Pacific, providing a counterbalance to, to China. One of the most compelling elements of your recommendations from 2014 was an integrated approach, uh, particularly on a North American basis, but also Canada, US on energy and energy security. And if we're seeing anything from the situation in Europe right now, uh, from President Biden's call for more production of oil from the OPEC countries, months after he canceled the Keystone XL pipeline. Isn't this really the key building block to North America 2.0? Is this energy collaboration and integration right from our electrical grid to build up resiliency right through to renewables, nuclear forms that allow a lower carbon emitting electricity grid? Isn't this the key to really taking the North American relationship to the next level? It, Aaron, it should be one of the fundamental cornerstones. And, and I think you, we've got uh, a, a problem here that's been identified, which is we all understand the need to move towards a energy transition away from fossil fuel sources. But we also realize energy security is very important. And about 80% of electricity in the world is still produced by fossil fuels. So, as you mentioned, we've got midterm elections tomorrow. People will notice that high energy prices and gas at the pump isn't so popular. So you need to be able to have energy security while having a transition. Now, the trick that I see in this, and you know this from the Canadian context, is, is that whether it's exploration, whether it's production, whether it's refinement, whether it's the infrastructure, for energy, you often need big capital investments. And big capital investments mean you need longer term payoffs and payoffs over time. And so part of the problem for the industry is that you can see even before the Russia-Ukraine war, they weren't investing in some of these areas because the policy message was, we're going to put you out of business. Mm -hmm. And the Keystone Pipeline is an excellent example. I just think that was such a foolhardy decision. And when the Biden administration then goes back and says, oh, well, why are people producing? Well, they did everything possible to signal the industry they were going out of business. So what would you be, to be surprised on this? So I think the catch here, as you know, is how do you get the energy security 
with the attention to energy transition. North America is well positioned on both of these. So to me, this would be a classic for a combination of policy coordination in terms of the data collaboration, modernization of the infrastructure to try to meet the needs. I was reading in a new report that, you know, part of this is the question of the storage and that you can actually, because of the hydropower in Canada, in effect, you can store some of the energy you produce with alternative sources with the hydro systems in Canada. So you can sort of connect those two together. There's going to be a human capital need, too. You can start to see in some of these sectors a crunch in terms of some of the, the, the talent that, that people need, regulatory and standards cooperation, but at the same time, some of the acceleration of the renewables, which you know all three of our countries have the possibility. The grid is critically important. And you know it, it, for a lot of people, that people just don't give enough attention on this. What it's sad to see in the case of Mexico is I was trying to expand some of the natural gas uh, uh, sort of pipelines and the electricity grid to northern Mexico because, frankly, that was going to be important for Mexico's competitiveness, ability to compete with China. I'd rather have stuff assembled in Mexico than have it done yeah. in, in China. But you can see in the United States, there was a view that said, well, if we make that more possible, well, businesses will move to Mexico. Frankly, you know, the, the heart of the North American idea, and you've seen this particularly in the auto industry, is all three are going to do well together or they're going to suffer together. You know, how do you interconnect that industry more effectively? So energy is one of the areas, you know, but frankly, Aaron, I, I look across the whole system and say, you know, if you look at the fundamentals, you've got three democracies, you've got you know, about 500 million people, you should have energy independence and ability to export. Our demographics are better than the rest of the world if we see human resources as a, as a capital as opposed to something that interferes with us. So you don't, we don't necessarily have to have, you know, everybody be able to become citizens of one another, but you, you can definitely have sort of greater sort of worker mobility. And the cooperation on the topics that we're discussing are going to be fundamental to the development of all our industries. Frankly, as you know, the United States right now is going to have a difficult patch with Mexico because of some of Lopez Obrador's policies. That shouldn't stop us from going ahead with Canada on as many of these items. And then where I found the Canadian involvement to be helpful is, of course, there's an asymmetry with Mexico. And so if Canada is involved, it creates some greater sense of balance, which perhaps eases the Mexican process. Because for the long term U.S. interests, whether it's immigration or narcotics and organized crime or energy or economics, we got to help Mexico make the next step. Agreed. And and one thing that was in your report alongside uh, energy and supply chain resilience was was also this labor mobility piece. Uh, and if you look right now, we're in a very unusual time economically in that we're on the cusp of a recession and there are huge, huge labor shortages. So it's not a typical scenario where uh, right now we're experiencing large you know, swaths of unemployment. There is a huge labor crisis in in Canada and in the United States. I think we're in this weird economic period ahead of a recession, but there's help wanted signs all across our country. And I know that's the same in large swaths of the United States. Yeah, well, one of the things you were kind enough to mention the report that David Petraeus and, and I did a few years ago. And, you know, 
just to go back to the, the origins of that, which you might find interesting, you know, if you if you go to the websites of most of the foreign policy institutes in the United States, I'm on the board of a few, you'll find studies about Europe, uh, Asia, uh, Middle East, sometimes Latin America, Africa, almost none on North America. And yet this should be the cornerstone. And one of the reasons that uh, Petraeus and I did this was that obviously, you know, while we, we've had global careers and Petraeus obviously is his reputation as a soldier primarily overseas and my work in different capacities was all around the world. What we wanted to emphasize was not just someone who was interested in Mexico or Canada, but somebody who had a global perspective, understood the importance of North America and how it fits into a sort of global policy for all three countries. You know, I mentioned uh, working on the Canada Free Trade Agreement in 1988. I mean, this is up for Canadians to decide. But as I've watched over the years, frankly, one of the visionary aspects of that agreement was that Canadians decided, and this had been back and forth over, the, over a century or more, that, look, if Canada compete with the U.S. business, you're going to be more effective globally. And I think that's what we've seen, is that Canadian business, frankly, is world-class competitive in part because of this competition and interconnection. But you and I were mentioning before, the, the good news is there's a new book coming out from the Wilfer Center and the Belfer Institute that I'm at Harvard with the uh, editors being Tom Long and Alan Burson that actually looks at a lot of these issues. So for people who are interested, whether it's border management or energy or environment or defense or others, they've got good essays on it. And what one of the things that I guess I take away from this, Aaron, was the fact that, you know, we didn't design NAFTA as simply being a super governmental model. The idea was to try to encourage bottoms up connection. So, you know, maybe it's Canadian railways that are buying into North America and to U.S. railways all the way down to Mexico. Maybe it's the universities. And one thing important not to lose sight of here is given the confederal nature of Canada and the federal nature of the U.S., there's a lot that can be done at the state to state level and at the city level, because, frankly, you want to try to have the, the two federal governments create a facilitating environment, encourage compacts on everything from emergency response. But a lot of it's going to do to sort of broader economic policy. But a lot of it's going to be done at the local level. So getting that combination right, I think, is going to be important. Absolutely. And when we first met uh, as a result of your work on this report, Bob, I was the lead as the parliamentary secretary for trade on regulatory cooperation with the United States and work on the beyond the border and harmonization of regs to right. facilitate more efficiency for North American supply chains. That makes sense. And we saw this at play during the pandemic with the approval of vaccines. I used to say we should be basically approving in tandem with the FDA and Health Canada because of not only our, our trade relationship, but we trust the highest standards in the world of the FDA. In fact, we unfortunately approved thalidomide in Canada decades ago, whereas the FDA did not. So I think we can we can actually take solace in the fact that by harmonizing those regulations, we actually help in the case of the pandemic. Had we collaborated a little more, we wouldn't have been begging President Trump for, for PPE and for, for access to supplies because 
uh, a mobile North America is going to have to look at public health measures and, and vaccines and public PPE on an integrated basis, or we're going to go again into these long periods of closing borders and, and restricting travel, which I think uh, there was overkill on that in this in this pandemic. So we have to learn. Do you think there's an ability to get back to that where we we respect the regulatory process of each independent country, but also harmonize them for efficiency? Well, as you know, Aaron, um, when when the trade people get into the area of, sort of regulatory systems, this gets highly politically sensitive because we know about different types of barriers of tariffs and quotas in the trade area. The regulatory agencies are often come up in sort of individual professional cultures. So the first part is simply getting them to talk to one another yeah. and <laughs> develop some degree of trust. And sometimes harmonization will be difficult, but an, a, a close combination is mutual recognition. You know, and this should definitely be the case in the U.S.-Canadian uh, situation. I think you know, the area that I still think it just it needs the attention, but frankly, given where we are with information technology and algorithms, we should see a vast improvement is on some of the border efforts. So some of this takes place at the border, but as you mentioned in your experience, some of it is beyond the border. It's the steps that are taken before. And, and this depends, frankly, on developing a degree of trust of, among the sort of key players. It's probably easier in the U.S.-Canada side than the U.S. sort of Mexico side, but we need to work there as well. And frankly, you know, whether it's the question of sort of uh, intelligence cooperation, whether it's sharing information, as you know, kind of the voluntary shipper programs basically expedited this because we could say, look, your processing would receive a priority and, and, and attention during business resumption, but you have to share the data. You have to be willing to sort of share this information. As I mentioned with algorithms, I mean, you're not checking each box across the border. You should be able to do a much better job of knowing sort of what what's coming through as well. And then there's all the efforts in terms of the, the crossing points, the investments in the infrastructure, the ports, but also some basic things like interoperable communication systems, you know, trying to deal with cross-border smuggling. I mean, as you know, with the whole focus on terrorism after 9-11, the reason that people can come into all three countries is because all three countries have agreed on basically some vetting of air travelers. Well, this involves some sharing of sovereignty and information, but it allows people to move much more freely. So whether it's trusted traveler programs or other aspects, I would put a very high priority on this. And, and the costs, obviously, of the friction at the border are very, very high. And who does that help? That helps nobody. Yeah. And in fact... If you look at the news lately, the main trusted traveler program that a lot of Canadians benefit from, myself included, the Nexus program is a little bit at risk. It's been on hiatus yeah, throughout yeah. the pandemic. So we have to get back to this. In fact, your report used the cleared once approved thrice approach for regulatory and sort of harmonization on that point. If we can get this labor mobility piece, particularly for areas of the economy that are uh, in a in a labor deficit, more mobility between the three countries only helps all three. Um, let's talk for a minute uh, about the Arctic, because I've spoken to Senator Sullivan in Alaska about this many times, how we've not kept up the collaboration that was really started by 
President Reagan, Prime Minister Mulroney in the Arctic. There's a Russian border to the Arctic. China has ambitions as a near Arctic state. We're not really pro projecting our sovereignty to the extent that we, we, we should be. I proposed years ago that we sign on to ballistic missile defense and complete the full NORAD relationship because of the, the, the mutual benefit for both security cooperation and, and trade cooperation. We're the closest, most integrated ally to the United States. Is the Arctic an opportunity to kickstart and get the Canada-US relationship back on track? I think it's both an opportunity and a huge need. Um, and I'm delighted that you're talking with, with uh, Senator Sullivan, who began his career as an intern in my office at the State Department. <laughs> a great and still, uh, still a military officer as well. He's an impressive... Uh, He's a Marine colonel in the reserves and maybe a brigadier. So he does have that accommodation. So I'm glad you're you're in touch with him. He's a he's a wonderful human being as well. And actually, one other connection that um, I've talked with some Canadians, Australians, and and with Senator Sullivan about is we talked about that energy transition. You know, all of a sudden people are going to discover we're going to need some minerals that we didn't have before. Now, frankly, Canada and Australia have more of a mining culture and industry. Mm -hmm. The U.S. used to have that. It's kind of slipped away. But I think this is another area of cooperation. How do we do this in an environmentally sound way, you know, sensitivity to First Nations, indigenous peoples? And Senator Sullivan, of course, was the commissioner for natural resources in Alaska. This is very much on his topic. So that's another example of where you're going to have the expansion. In terms of Arctic security, uh, I can't think of anything that is closer to the U.S. in sort of Canadian interest. And obviously, with climate change, you're going to have different navigation, mobility. You've got resources and the seabed and others. This is definitely an area where the United States and Canada, and then hopefully some of the other European Arctic-based countries, whether it's Norway or others, can, can enhance the cooperation. I think this is, uh, is key. And one thing, um, we haven't been working with the Alaskan delegation to the point that there was a lot of friction on energy development. Uh, we were making the, the caribou herd our, our, one of our top foreign uh, priorities in Washington at a time we should have been talking security, train, uh, trade, Huawei, these sorts of things. And we really alienated the, the Alaskan delegation um, and then cut off the cruise traffic to, to Vancouver Island um, uh, when the Alaskan cruise ship business was getting back up. So there's almost this really low hanging fruit that Canada hasn't been taking advantage of to remind our friends in the United States of the, the length, depth and importance of the relationship. Um, as we're closing out, Bob, is there any... Aaron, just one sure. thing on, you know, because we, we've talked about the federal governments and we talked about the provinces and states, but your reference to working with the Congress is critically important. You know, many countries still assume foreign relations. It's just up to the foreign ministries and the State Department. Canada figured out, you know, that good relations with the Congress is important. And I remember, frankly, you know, when the Trump administration was putting some threat to USMCA and, and Canada was negotiating it, you in particular, your party, I think, did the right patriotic thing by trying to work with the liberal government and trying to say, we stand together as Canadians on this. And, and that was exactly the right course of action. But what it also suggests for the future is 
those ties with members of Congress, helping them understand the Canadian perspective on these issues, understand how Canada can be a good friend and partner, but also the United States needs to be attentive to some of Canada's needs. That's critical going forward. I, I think so. And I found that I would try and meet with some of the veterans in Congress because just having served in the Canadian Armed Forces, that was instantly an area of, of comfort where it didn't matter what branch of the service they were from. They had served with Canadians in Afghanistan, Iraq, in Europe, and it reminded them in their busy day where all countries of the world are, are making their way to Washington, that the, the neighbor to the north that you don't have to worry about too much does have some strategic priorities that if we work together are often in the U.S. national interest just as much as they are in ours. And going back to your discussion of the state of play around the world, in this rising great power uh, rivalry environment, as you said, the holiday from history, I like that. It's not, you know, we've talked about the end of history and, and there's a lot of allusions to that. It was a holiday from history where the U.S. was the hegemonic uh, world leader. China hadn't risen to to a level that it was a threat. Russia seemed to be uh, an ally. Uh, China was granted entry to the WTO, and it seemed like things were heading in the right direction. And now we're seeing that's not the case. I firmly believe whether it is a proposal I had years ago called Kanzuk, where Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and UK use those sort of commonwealth linkages to do more free trade, more security collaboration, add the United States to that. And you've got AUKUS plus Canada providing a democratic rule of law, respect for human rights, counterbalance to rising dictatorial powers around the world. Do you think that is where the those allies need to go? More, more collaboration, more partnership in these uncertain times? Aaron, I, I go back to the fundamentals. And here I'll just share with you, you know, some 30 years of experience going back to the, as I mentioned, I was uh, at the Treasury Department in the Reagan administration and, and Bush 41 and then uh, the second President Bush and at the World Bank. I always found that Canadian diplomacy was most effective when Canada worked with the United States to try to assess the larger questions going on in the so Canada, of course, always have the bilateral issues, some of which we talked about, some of which are the frictions. I honestly found that personally, and I think for my U.S. colleagues, one was motivated more to try to resolve and untie the knots of those problems. If you saw Canada as your partner in Europe and in Asia and the rest of the world. And so, you know, frankly, um, the United States, like any big country, can have its own myopia. And so if you've got good, trusted friends that can tell you privately, look, you might want to think of this, you might want to take account of this or be careful about this. That's the most valuable thing that any big power can have. Moroni had that relationship with Reagan, and he certainly had it with, uh, with the first president, Bush, 41. And, and I've had it, and frankly, across parties, frankly, some of my best partners, Pierre Pettigrew from the Liberal Party, a very strong free trader on issues. We work together on all sorts of trade topics together, including with Ernesto Debez, our, our sort of Mexican colleague. And so 
what I think the, the bigger picture here is, is that, you know, I know that Canada often feels it's overlooked and sometimes it is. And that's why we need to sort of from the U.S. side, pay attention to some of the Canadian interests. But I think if Canada, just as you've done today, says, look, how do we think about Canada, North America in a global context? You'll find that there's more sensitivity to Canadian interests as well as kind of helping the United States along the way. The NATO, from its very origin, was Canada. This wasn't just the U.S. It was it was sort of North Atlantic, and Canada was a key sort of founding partner. Uh, Derek Burney often reminds me that there were more Canadian forces in Europe at the end of World War II than there were French. Um, and so, you know, there's a long history here. We've talked about in, in the Asia Pacific. And so even on top of kind of the agenda we've talked about, energy security and transition, minerals, you know, I put forward the idea we should be doing something with the UK on sort of North Atlantic trade. There's a huge possibility for kind of mutual interest in this process. But also, uh, uh, the one thing I'll just say for a Canadian audience is that I recognize at times the United States is kind of bludgeoned and, and has not handled the relationship as well. I'll give you some small comfort. And this is, this is a small example. But look, when I was president of the World Bank, you won't be shocked that lots of countries are kind of interested in making sure that their nationals have various positions. And you may take some small satisfaction that I felt that I should be watching out for Canadians as well as Mexicans as well. There were enough Americans. They had enough folks. <laughs> but so, so I always tried to keep an eye out to try to help some of the careers of the, of the Canadians along the way. And so I think that's why we have to sort of see ourselves more in a North American context. I agree. This has been a fascinating discussion, Bob. Thank you. I think we take from it as we are a little bit worried uh, about a declining influence in Washington, this North America 2.0, which is what we're calling this podcast and which is what the the uh, Long Burson Report, the Wilson Center is called as well. Some learnings from this discussion, I guess. Canada has to decide what we're bringing to the party, to use your term, particularly in the Indo-Pacific, as we're ramping up our defense spending to our 2% NATO commitment, which we should be making. Uh, even Obama uh, politely reminded us of that when he addressed our, our parliament years ago. Um, we have to make sure that we're committed there, both in terms of, of, of presence and long-term commitment, and maybe get a seat at those tables like the Quad and AUKUS, be the reliable partner, uh, whether it's on technology, China, trade, uh, a transshipment of steel and aluminum, making sure that we address some of those U.S. trade concerns. And third, I think, and you talked about making the case to Congress, we have to be a little bit more forceful. We have to be a little bit more strategic in, in making the case. And the one thing that Ms. Freeland, Mr. Trudeau did a lot. They spoke to a lot of governors. They spoke to a lot of, of states. Nothing replaces time in, in Washington with, with both Republicans, Democrats, uh, developing relationships that could blossom long term and really make the case for that reliable, steadfast friend in Canada. Those are three takeaways I've got from your, uh, your uh, uh, hints on how we can reverse the decline in the relationship. Any other final uh, thoughts you want to share with us, Bob? No, Aaron, just to thank you for your service to uh, the two countries and, and to North America as a whole, as well as your service to Canada. 
you know, as we've discussed here, th- there will be frictions. I notice there's some frictions in Canadian politics, just as U.S. politics. It's the nature of the business. The question is kind of managing the disagreements and keeping your eye on the big picture. And you've been great in helping us do that. So thank you. Well, listen, you've been great to share some of your time and experience and and insights on this important relationship. Brian Mulroney probably uh, was the best modern Canadian prime minister in terms of advancing our interests alongside uh, our strong ally, both, as you said, with Presidents Reagan and George Bush. Um, He said the two key considerations for any Canadian prime minister is national unity. We've got a large and complex country. But the second, maintaining a strong relationship with the United States. And I think that's what this podcast was intended to explore and discuss. And before you started, you talked about your visits to to Gananoque in the Kingston area and, and some of your family linkages there. You've run around Fort Henry, which, of course, was built to to defend Canada from uh, our friends to the United States. And it kind of shows the hilly, long historic relationship um, at times has been uh, uh, cold and even adversarial. But really, we are friends, partners, allies, and really family. So thank you for your tremendous leadership in, in maintaining that strong alliance between Canada and the United States. Well, Aaron, you're too polite to notice that, to, to comment that the few times the United States decided to go north of the border, it didn't work out. <laughs> well, listen, this worked out very well. So, Bob, I can't thank you enough for bringing your perspective to the Blue Skies podcast today. Uh, we will see how the midterm results go, and we'll see how this dialogue around the North America 2.0, the reset, time for a new focus, uh, is maintained. But blue skying it today with you has been a true pleasure. Thank you.